welcome to Parallel Worlds, audio issue 14, October 2020, the best of this month's Parallel Worlds magazine, expertly recorded. The Quiet War, exploring the polity novels of Neil Asher. The old saying goes, with great power comes great responsibility. In the sprawling dark sci-fi universe of the polity, British sci-fi author Neil Asher has created a future history where humanity and its sentient artificial intelligences have access to great power through technology. But that technology may in itself be a trap that could utterly destroy us. The AIs that govern humanity's future wield weapons that can crack planets and warp reality itself. They have no hesitation in pursuing a for-the-greater-good mentality, supplanting individual rights for the sake of a stable society. Yet, without them, the many horrific dangers of the wild galaxy, not to mention internal conflict, would have already wiped humanity from galactic history. Under the control of AI, humanity is enjoying an unprecedented golden age of peace and prosperity. The polity is the name for a human AI empire that spans a sizable chunk of the galaxy in Asher's future vision. The 18 novels and numerous short stories of the Polity series span a period of almost a thousand years, starting in the 24th century. Most of the novels take place beyond the line, the imaginary demarcation on the galactic charts that separates the almost certain death of the wild galaxy from the AI-protected safety and luxury of the Polity. Typically, the novels focus on characters who are, in various ways, concerned with ensuring that the citizens of the Polity generally remain safe from whatever terrible thing is happening. It's difficult to classify Asher's sci-fi. Some stories definitely sit solidly in the military sci-fi camp. Some are decidedly horrific tales that worm their way into your brain, while others sneak into the spy genre without tripping any alarms. Overall, the entire polity series can be called space opera, but within that, there's something that'll appeal to most sci-fi enthusiasts. At times, the polity novels swing into sci-fantasy, Though it's clear Asher has a solid grasp on current scientific theories, and Clark's oft-quoted third law comes into play frequently, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. It's easy to argue that the series might be one of the most viscerally believable visions of the far future facing us, one where technological advancements bring us amazing, powerful and life-changing technology. However, as rapidly as we advance, we discover new mysteries that present an ever-expanding front of stuff we don't know yet. And what we don't know has a high potential to kill us. So, the quest for knowledge continues. But what if seeking knowledge is what kills us? The relationship between humans and technology is the main theme of the polity novels, underpinning pretty much every book to some degree. In the sprawling and detailed backstory of the series, Asher gives us a future where humanity eventually manages to develop sentient artificial intelligence. Shortly after it was created, some 30 or so years from now, it realised that humans were pretty terrible at governing themselves, and took over. This takeover was done so subtly, so quickly and so skillfully, that most people didn't realise it was happening. It was dubbed the Quiet War, and the AI inserted itself as the sole eternal and total dictator. Humanity, freed from corrupt politicians, corporate monopolies, and generally all the things that get in the way, developed both technologically and socially extremely rapidly. In this egalitarian far future, humans are near immortal. Individuals are free to pursue pretty much whatever life they want, 
provided they don't endanger or hurt another citizen without consent. AI lives and works alongside humanity to the betterment of everyone involved. For the first time in human history, we're truly free. Free of oppression, discrimination, hunger, even death. All this freedom comes with some caveats, though. The AI that rules the polity, which named itself Earth Central, or EC for short, has a zero-tolerance policy for anyone or anything that endangers the polity as a whole or its individual citizens. As well as EC, we're introduced to many other AI, all of whom are citizens of the polity and are individuals with their own personalities and quirks. Just like humans, in the polity most starships are essentially the robotic bodies of sentient AI, as are most cities and pretty much every important machine. Androids are basically human-shaped free-roaming AI, and there are war drones, probably the most enjoyable characters in the series. War drones were created to fight the only other living sentient aliens encountered by the polity at the time, the Praedor. In the post-war peace, war drones have been encouraged to find other professions, often with amusing results. Asher's vision of the galaxy is one that explores a fascinating and horrifying solution to the Fermi paradox. Put simply, if the evolution of sentient life is not a one-time event that happened only on Earth, then where are all the vast star-spanning alien empires that must have arisen in the billions of years between the birth of the galaxy and now? As the polity expands through the galaxy, they encounter the horrifically vicious Praedor Empire. These aliens are explored in great detail through many of the novels, and aren't simply a metaphor for ourselves with some forehead ridges. Initially, the Praedor smashed into the polity, enslaving, eating and simply killing everything. E.C. realised that in creating a near-perfect society free of war and conflict, it failed to adequately prepare for the eventuality of encountering an enemy that simply doesn't conform to its ideas of morality or reason. The Praedor can't be negotiated with. They don't want peace. They simply want to destroy the polity and loot the carcass. And they can't initially even imagine that the polity is anything but prey to be killed. The war is brutal. Asher describes in detail what battle against an overwhelming alien force could actually be like. What war is always really like. Stripped of the gloss of propaganda and rose-tinted reminiscing. Utterly horrifying, soul-destroying, and often having consequences that last far longer than the conflict itself. During the war, the polity scrambles to create weapons and technologies that can match the Praedor's already war-centric society. Part of this response is to develop the war drones mentioned earlier. AI in various weaponized robotic bodies, something polity has never needed before and has to essentially invent on the spot. It turns out that even in a technologically sophisticated society, when faced with utter annihilation, some corners get cut. Many war drones and AI brains made during the Praedor War contain errors introduced by too rapid mass production. Often these AI pass the initial hasty psychological tests and are rushed into battle, forcing already fragile minds to face the horrors of war. Having a psychologically disturbed human with a gun is fairly dangerous, but an unhinged AI encased in a battleship the size of a small moon, or in the body of a massively weaponized robot, is something much worse. These mad AI underpin parts of future stories, being the instigators of some of the largest events in a post-war polity. Through stories like these, we learn that AI isn't infallible, despite many AI claiming otherwise. Even the great Earth Central is held to account, asked to justify some of its more Machiavellian decisions. Things even more disturbing than aggressive aliens and mad AI lurks in the galaxy, though. Explorers have long known that the galaxy is littered with the remnants of several long-extinct, highly technological alien races. 
Some polity technology is based on recovered tech from these extinct aliens. Each of these advanced cultures seem to have died out somewhere along their technological prime for unknown reasons, at least until explorers discovered that one of the oldest ancient races, named the Jain by polity researchers, is in fact the reason why all the others are extinct. This is Asher's answer to the where are all the vast star-spanning alien empires. What was first thought to be remnants of the ancient Jain civilization turned out to be deliberately placed technological traps. These artifacts are so sophisticated that any younger race finding one will find it almost impossible to resist taking it apart to learn its secrets. Why are there no vast alien empires spanning the galaxy? Because as soon as a race develops enough to figure out how to take apart these Jain artifacts to take advantage of the advanced tech they contain, they are at most a few centuries from utter destruction by what they learn. The polity is simply the latest in a long line of galactic civilizations to be toying with Jane tech. Part of the brilliance of the polity series is that alongside these gigantic stories of civilization-ending scale, there's plenty of room for smaller, more human dramas. The story of Ian Cormack in the first published polity novel, Gridlinked, puts the relationship between individual humans and AI at the very core of the story. Cormac is an agent of Earth Central. In Gridlinked, he's literally compared to James Bond, and the analogy is pretty apt. Like Bond, Cormac is deeply scarred by his years of service to the government, enacting the necessary principles of for the greater good. Two things become clear almost immediately. First, EC is capable of literally observing and reacting to some degree almost everything occurring within the polity, but it rarely does so directly. Secondly, EC tries to make decisions that take into account both the individual and the whole of society. Cormac is essentially one of the many hands of EC. He goes where he's told, often infiltrating groups that threaten the safety of the polity. These are collectively known as separatists, people who dislike being ruled by AI and would prefer to self-govern. Instead of simply leaving the polity and living on a world outside AI control, which everyone can if they want, they instead try to prove that the AI is the problem usually by trying to start a war and blowing things up. It's quickly apparent that Cormac is more than human, but he's less than an android. Cormac is what's known as gridlinked. His brain is technologically linked to a universal Wi-Fi connection, which means he can access any data anywhere with just a thought. For him, it's an almost subconscious connection. Often he finds information on his surroundings flooding into his mind without having to access it. This is obviously a huge advantage for a secret agent. He's able to access information on his targets, respond dynamically to evolving situations, call up maps of escape routes, use the polity version of cloud software to help him aim and pinpoint enemies, and even download information on psychology, local customs, and how-to guides on anything he needs whilst on mission. Being gridlinked in many ways seems like the ultimate tool. When we meet Cormac at the start of the novel, though, he's barely human. His reactions are described as robotic, and one character even mistakes him for an android, which crucially destroys his cover and causes him to fail his mission. As the story unfolds, we find that EC itself is concerned about the long-term effects of gridlinking on the human brain. Cormac is encouraged to deactivate his gridlink, forcing him to go cold turkey and be just human for the first time in 30 years. Other than the obvious, having to rely on external gadgets for gathering data, the main result of this is that Cormac finds himself reacting much more on instinct, for better or worse. EC points out, however, that it has plenty of AI agents, and what it wants from its human agents is something that just can't be simulated, made or copied. Humanness. This is really the crux of the polity universe. 
Despite AI demonstrably being better than humans, capable of making intelligent decisions that far exceed anything humans can manage, and even displaying the full range of emotions, just like humans, or even becoming unhinged, sociopathic, or even psychotic, just like humans, it's clear that AIs still highly value a human's ability to make gut instinct calls, to become emotional, and to simply act on a feeling. There's a continual back and forth for many characters in all the polity novels between the advantages of being more than human compared to the perceived flaws of being merely human. Yet, typically, key decisions that shape the galaxy are impossible unless made by humans and AI working together. Even Earth Central in many situations, rather than taking responsibility away from humanity, often sits back and lets humans and lesser AI take the lead. EC pulls the strings behind the scenes to support the decisions of the key players in whatever drama is unfolding, but it rarely unilaterally takes action. It seems clear that Asher is presenting us with an interpretation of the so-called singularity, the creation of successor or seeing AI, and a path through and beyond it. Rather than an either-or approach, as is common in speculative fiction, either we destroy or contain AI so it doesn't get too smart, or it will seek to supplant us mere mortals, often just killing us all, Asher asks, why wouldn't AI see the value in us and want to share the future with us? Through the polity novels, we see the huge flaws of speculative AI consciousness. Arrogance, dispassionate for the greater good mentality, and the potential to be spectacularly destructive if they become unhinged. Similarly, we see the positives. The polity is a powerful, immensely peaceful and safe egalitarian society. Personal freedom is near limitless, and there's no discrimination of any sort. It's close to being post-scarcity. War is rare and possibilities nearly endless. The price was giving up governance of our own society. If Earth Central really existed, how many of us would happily give up high-level control of human society to a near-infallible benevolent dictator? How many would become a separatist, resisting simply the idea of a non-human intelligence having ultimate say over our lives? This is probably the question that, as individuals and as a society, we may well have to answer pretty soon. Classics of Sci-Fi, The Gods Themselves The Gods Themselves takes place throughout time, but starts in 1970. Through sheer coincidence, scientist Frederick Hallam discovers a parallel universe, or paraverse, when a jar of tungsten is magically substituted for plutonium-186, an impossible element that cannot exist in our universe. As our universe's laws bleed into the plutonium, Hallam discovers and capitalises on an apparently free and clean source of infinite energy, creating his electron pump. It quickly changes the world and Hallam is deemed the saviour of mankind. The novel is split into three parts, each from the perspective of a different character. First, we have Lamont, a disgruntled scientist who discovers that the sun will supernova because of Hallam's electron pump, and tries to prove it. No one will listen, least of all Hallam, whose primary concern is to keep his status as father of the electron pump, and no one on Earth is willing to believe the evidence and give up the benefit of infinite energy. Asimov shines a light on the self-serving interests of humans, and Lamont himself is no exception. He strives because he wants to knock the egotistical Hallam from his high chair, rather than the altruistic reason to save humanity. Lamont, so hell-bent to prove Hallam's pump is dangerous, is antagonistic and argumentative to those who cannot see his point of view. 
He knows he is right but cannot convince anyone of it, and he ultimately fails because humanity would rather take the risk than give up their creature comforts, drawing parallels to our own crisis with global warming. It serves as an excellent allegory to the problems we face today. Part 2, The Gods Themselves, is the best of the entire book. We are told the story of the Paramen from the perspective of three soft ones, Dua, an emotional, Odin, a rational, and Trit, a parental, three individual consciousnesses. Together the three form a triad, an ethereal alien family who are trying to conceive children through a process called melting, basically weird alien sex. The hard ones, different from the soft ones, serve as the scientists of the Paraverse, almost godlike in their knowledge and unquestionable status. Part 2 starts with Dua, an emotional who is written as female, pleasuring herself on a rock. Trit and Odin are both written as male, and each chapter follows each soft one's journey. Dua is one of Asimov's best realised characters. She's sassy, immodest, and most importantly, questions everything. In the Paraverse, it is highly unusual for an emotional to reason and think. These are activities reserved for the rationals. This leaves Dua shunned from the rest of the emotionals and labelled as queer for not fitting into her role. There are strong themes of gender identity prevalent throughout this section of the novel, and it's fascinating to read, especially when you take into account when it was written. Dua thinks herself irrational despite being born and emotional, and it's one of the most interesting parts of her character to watch as she slowly comes to understand herself. Parental soft ones are seen as inferior because they are driven by instinct, however they are needed because the species is in danger of extinction. Odin is deemed important by the Hard Ones, considered the best rational his species has ever had. He is the most normal of the three and struggles to balance his love for Dua and his duties to have a child with Trit. It's a sort of dysfunctional romance that is endearing, especially when it causes them all to butt heads, despite lacking that appendage. However, the care Asimov takes in exploring the culture, society and anatomy of the Paramen is arguably undercut by the twist at the end. I was far more sympathetic to the plight of the Paramen than my own kind, who repeatedly ignore the warnings of an impending crisis, a situation which, again, feels all too familiar. What's worse is that part two is the last we see of the Paramen, leaving a bitter taste in my mouth to an otherwise excellent read. It's a shame because they were the only reason I wanted to read on. The third part, Contend in Vain, has the world-ending plot seemingly resolved in the background whilst our third protagonist, Denison, gazes towards the stars. He also hears about Lamont's theory, which seems impossible given the roadblocks Lamont faced, and that he was unable to have his findings or work published. Denison apparently learns of this while living on the moon, secluded from Earth, the scientific community, or even Lamont. Ultimately, part three would have felt more satisfying had the Earth been disintegrated into a puff of gas, and could have stood as a testament, a cautionary tale of the dangers that ignoring the truth can lead to. Despite this, part three is a return to form for Asimov, who once again takes great care in explaining how humans have colonised the moon in true Golden Age fashion. Structurally, the novel's narrative is disjointed and seemingly at odds with itself, which is understandable given that each part was realised in a sci-fi magazine as three consecutive stories. But this sense of disconnect is, in large, where the narrative and my enjoyment suffers the most. There is a lot to like with the gods themselves. Its themes and ideas of identity, self-worth, and of course the dangers of willful ignorance were way ahead of its time. It's no wonder that, when put together, the three parts' full titles read Against Stupidity, the Gods Themselves Contend in Vain. Asimov wasn't one for subtlety. Unfortunately, the novel isn't greater than the sum of those parts, and there are other works of Asimov that have arguably contributed more to the genre. 
Despite all of this, The Gods Themselves stands isolated from that legacy, not necessarily as a story to be enjoyed, but a piece of literature and set of ideas to be mulled over and discussed. From that perspective, it is arguably more valuable. Dread from the Big Meg, the Judge Dread tabletop game. Growing up in the 80s, my friends and I were no stranger to the pages of 2000 AD. Some were attracted to the stories of Johnny Alpha and the Strontium Dogs. Others, the ABC Warriors, or Nemesis the Warlock. But for me, the headline act was always Judge Dredd, and the other stories set in the irradiated world of the megacities. So I jumped at the chance to play the I Am The Law Judge Dredd starter game and the arch-villains of Megacity add-on box. The box is just big enough to fit the footprint of the rulebook and a bit of wiggle room. The first surprise was that it was a full soft-color rulebook. Usually with box starter games, you get some quick start rules light affair and have to go buy a full rulebook as an add-on. So that was a big thumbs up straight away. The next surprise is that Although there are some cardboard bits you can pop out and play with, the critical game components, your order tokens and injury markers, are all on plastic sprues. Again, this is a big thumbs up. Usually you would expect to get these in serviceable cardboard with the option to drop some extra cash to get the deluxe versions as an add-on. As for the miniatures, in the I am the law box, you get a street judge, a cadet, and a block gang. All are standard plastic single piece castings. Being single piece casting, the judges in particular are light on detail and posed flat, but they have a passing resemblance to Carl Urban and Olivia Thirlby from the 2012 movie. The block gang are actually very nice models in a typical punky mega city style. There are also some custom dice and a bunch of game cards. Overall, I was very impressed with the contents of the starter box. The rulebook itself is beautifully laid out and lavishly festooned with dread art drawn from the pages of 2000 AD and the magazine. Combined with photographs of the studio painted miniatures, it's a lovely piece of clean design. Full kudos to Dylan Owen for a job well done. I particularly like the campaign system included with the rulebook, which adds a story mode element to games. In fact, you're encouraged to mix it up and replicate your favorite stories from the pages of 2000 AD. Want to simulate the Cursed Earth Trek? Easy Justice Department versus Moody Sky Raiders? Want to run a soft block sleeper cell? Add a soft genetic construct to a block gang? or a city def unit? Want to recreate block mania? Go city def on city def? With even the few miniature sets available at the moment, there's a lot of possibilities. And if you want to go judge versus judge, you can do that as either special judicial service hunting, a rogue judge, or with a bit of conversion work or imagination, run East Meg or Bit-Sit judges against the Megacity's finest. There are, however, still quite a few of Megacity 1's best villains missing from the rulebook, 
which I would guess are on hold for a source book down the line. I'd love to see the Ape Gang, Angel Gang, though Mean Machine is in the Archvillain set. Dark Judges, though Judge Death is also in the Archvillain set. And my favorite, Juve Mutated Kung Fu Clegs. Gameplay is a fairly simple, every one of your models contributes an action ship and really good characters might contribute a star caption ship. More on this later. All the chips for all the models on both sides of the game go into a bag to be drawn out randomly. Players alternate draws, but whoever's chip comes out gets to play. Each time a chip is drawn, the owning player can activate one of its models, then leaves the chip on the table to show that the model cannot activate again this turn. Then there is the star chip. These have the possibility of going back into the bag to be drawn again and again and again, if you're really lucky. When you activate a model, you get to choose either two single actions like move, snapshot, or shake off, or perform a double action like sprint, aim shot, or overwatch. It's straightforward. It is only natural to compare the dice mechanics to the granddaddy of all tabletop games, Warhammer 40k. Doubly so given that both Andy Chambers and Gav Thorpe, formerly having worked on 40k, are credited as designers. Both games follow a three-step process, but 40k uses roll to hit, roll to wound, roll to save, leading to a lot of dice rolling, just to potentially get no effect. Dread refines this a little, using a roll to hit, roll to save, called evade, then roll to wound, potentially cutting down on the unnecessary dice rolling. Dice mechanics make use of the custom d6s. You roll a number of dice equal to the model's attribute, and you add or remove extra dice based on modifiers. Score more hits that the target's cool, and you also get to pin them. Then the opponent gets to evade, using the same principle as rolling to hit, except you need to score a special result on the dice to avoid being hit. At first, reading this took me back. You may have a 1 in 6 chance of a special result in each die roll, and you only need to get one result to completely negate the incoming attack. So rolling a few evade dice makes taking any kind of damage unlikely. However, it's not as bad as it first appears. Most perps have an evade stat of between 0 and 2, and judges are better off with 3 or 4. It does lend itself to a more cartoony comic book feel. Assuming they didn't evade, the attacker then gets to roll for damage. The number of success gives the damage effect, from stun through three stages of injury, to grievous, which also happens to reduce the model's attributes. Injured models, even if they are not off to resic, can become fairly useless quickly. If I have an issue with all this, it's that the number of tokens that can quickly clutter the tabletop. I'm not a fan of table clutter. Action chip, pinned marker, stunned marker, numerous injury markers, and so on. But this is easily solved. I personally like to have stat cards sitting along the side of the game table. 
The clutter of tokens can be put on the cards rather than the tabletop. The book also covers terrain, vehicles, and a host of weapons options that would make any futzy smile. To add complications to playing a scenario, there are both armory and big meg cards that players can use to screw things up for the opponent. Armory cards cover special bits of kit like high axe, incendiary rounds, or stims. Big Meg cards can be played between activations and add some extra Mega City flavor to the game, with the random appearance of a boinger, a weather control malfunction, or the arrival of time-traveled bounty hunters, Johnny Alpha and Wolf Sternhammer, who steal away your perp. I was grinning as I flicked through the card deck. Each time you buy an expansion pack, you get more armory and big meg cards to add to the chaos. The current COVID-19 situation being what it is, I'm not able to play the game against a real-life opponent, but the guys at Warlord Games have come up with a solo campaign system. The Graveyard Shift can be freely downloaded as a PDF from their website. This offers both an alternative to the story mode campaign system already in the rulebook and can be used as a solo or multiplayer. It does require you to spend a bit of time printing and cutting the various cards that run the system, but that's a small price to pay for being able to throw down a judge and set to work. The one limitation on the solo rules is that you play a street judge, so cannot take a juve gang, but Graveyard Shift does lay a foundation for you to get creative and build a perp-based campaign system, and you have some starting blocks you could work from. The Graveyard Shift sets up a mini-campaign that lasts for the duration of a single night in the Mega City. Each hour of the shift, you get to make a series of draws to determine the situation that your custom-made judge has to face. So you draw an incident card, followed by a number of perp cards, depending on the incident. The details on the cards set up the basic scenario you will be doing. Some of the combinations are a bit left of field, like Judge Death umpty bagging, or a Rogue Judge scrawling. Most of the odd combos are generated by the appearance of named characters like Judge Death or Judge Grice, being drawn in conjunction to petty crimes like littering or illegal possession. It's a lot of fun and very amusing when they occur. There are also support cards that dictate what kind of backup you can call upon, basically the models you get in addition to your own judge character. From our part, I created my own Judge Urban. I rather like the creation process. It's not quite role-playing, but adds some of the feel to what is otherwise a skirmish game. I did choose to prune the decks a little, taking out any options I didn't have access to or couldn't easily proxy out of my model collection. So basically, Moody Sky Raiders, as obviously my judge's street beat was deep in the Mega City, far from the wall. I also dropped the support cards that I couldn't represent easily. Judge Gerhardt and the various special weapons judges. And considered that fair compensation. This isn't a battle report, so I won't take you through a blow-by-blow -blow account, but I will say that Judge Urban's first incident was an armed robbery using the foot chase scenario. I pulled three perp cards and got Orlock the Assassin, 
a juvie gang, and a group of fatties. In support, I pulled two cards, getting Judge Dredd, oh yeah, and a cadet judge. I think for future games, I might be more balanced to stack a few extra unnamed cards in the deck to reduce the chance of me pulling a famous perp. For my story continuity, I decided that mine wasn't the real Orlock, but an East Meg agent who counts as Orlock for the sake of stats. As much as it was fun to play with Judge Shred on my first outing of the game, he did stomp all over the idea of Judge Urban being the center of my story. This writer found himself really enjoying the metagame and the story around and between scenarios. Sure, I enjoyed actually playing my first game, though, as it was my first time, a fair bit of time was spent rules referencing, so the whole thing took a good bit longer than expected. That said, I did really enjoy it. I'll get to play the next chapter in the story of Judge Urban next time my wife goes to visit her friends and I can have the kitchen table for the evening. I am the law. Judge Dread Starter Game is available from Warlord Games for £50. Games Masterclass. Journey or Location? One of the first questions that many players will ask a Games Master before a campaign begins will be about the setting. They need to know something about it before they can create a character, and different settings will have an impact on how they might explore different ideas. As well as that, however, the scale of the Games Master's answer will be revealing. Like most other matters of campaign design, this one is on a spectrum from a static setting to a full travelogue. The Games Master's decision will significantly impact the feel of the campaign, and different points on that spectrum will make some aspects of running that campaign easier or harder. Here we're talking about how the setting is going to be used, and the level of expected focus on travel. Is the campaign about a journey or a location? And how does that change how you need to prepare for it? A travelogue is a campaign where the player party moves around the world, or part of it. They'll typically start at point A, complete their quest at point B, and visit numerous different places in between. Classic examples are, of course, the Lord of the Rings or the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Conversely, a static setting keeps the party based in a particular area. This doesn't mean that they're confined to that area, it simply means that they have a home base that they often return to. Examples for this style of story would be Star Trek Deep Space Nine or the Dresden Files novels. Then there's a middle ground. Settings that flex the definitions and do a little of both. Star Trek The Next Generation, for example, was about the journey, but the size of the Enterprise gave many of the same benefits as a static setting. All of these, as you'd probably expect, come with advantages and potential pitfalls to be aware of. The travelogue-style story gives the Games Master the potential to explore far more of the world than a static setting would, as you'll be moving the party through many places throughout the campaign. This is great, but has the dangers of each area falling into caricature, especially if setting elements are based upon real-world cultures. This can be avoided, but it means that everybody has to put the work in. If you're only going to be spending a few weeks in one particular region, the temptation is there to present only a shallow interpretation of it. That's a natural feeling, 
made even more tempting by the fact that the Games Master probably doesn't want the story pulled off course by players getting too interested or invested in what should only be a short stop. However, how bad would it really be if players lingered in one particular part of the map for a while longer? If people are having fun with the current location, there isn't necessarily a problem in indulging that for a while. Just be careful to ensure that enough of the group are interested. Alternatively, if the main quest that should be pushing them on isn't, for some reason, can you make it more urgent? Another advantage, especially if you have characters in the party from different parts of the world, is that it's very easy to write personal plot for them, if you know that the campaign will visit their corner of the map at some point. Don't rely on that entirely, though. You don't want them to have nothing to personally invest in outside that, but it can give you something to hang a story from. On the other hand, in a travelogue it can be difficult to build up regular and meaningful interactions with non-player characters. They either need to come with the party, which may get ridiculous. In my first campaign, the party had more non-player characters than player characters. Have methods of communication, easier in some settings than others. Or come up with increasingly contrived reasons why your non-player characters are appearing over and over again in different parts of the world. The best way to handle this is probably a mix of solutions, but your mileage may vary. A travelogue will often, by its nature, feel episodic. There may be overlap between the sections in different parts of the world, but they'll still probably feel quite distinct. So it's a good idea to lean into this with the plotting. Try to ensure that each section has its own beginning, middle and end. Now let's think about the static settings. They need to be detailed, and the non-player characters that live there, with the player characters, really need to come alive. Many say that in such a campaign, the setting itself becomes a character and needs as much attention as any other non-player character. Your players will become familiar with the character's preferred tavern or supermarket, and you can use these as ways to get plot across, especially if your story requires the setting to evolve over time. For example, you can get the feel of a war-torn city across far more effectively by describing the changes to the regular people and places rather than showing battle scenes. In addition, just as you might threaten a non-player character to motivate the characters, when they have a home base, you can use that, be it a building, a city or a spacecraft, to reach the whole party. Your story may also require more effort to stay fresh in the same area and may require more attention to pace, since it can be harder to liven things up without seeming contrived and you don't want your players doing an endless round of taking turns talking to your wonderful non-player characters. Equal attention to players' personal stories also may require more effort, especially if your character party features a variety of nationalities, races, species within it. Many origin stories feature family members left behind, or enemies that the character is escaping from. If the campaign is set far from that place of origin, players need a reason for the character to be far from home. That same distance can make it very difficult to bring those plot hooks back into the campaign without the story starting to seem contrived. 
That extra work will, however, pay dividends in terms of campaign immersion. The extra time and attention that each part of the setting or non-player character receives will create a more rounded, three-dimensional experience. Similarly, when everything happens in the same place, games masters or players can mix and match the various plot lines together in interesting and different ways, depending on the focus the games master wants each session to have, or what themes the group wants to explore. There are few better ways to shake things up than to mix two plot lines together that you might not otherwise have considered. This will also create flow between sessions, stories and plot lines, avoiding the episodic feel generated by travel, often considered downtime in many role-playing games. That's not to say that you can't run an episodic game in a static setting if you want to. You absolutely can. However, in this case, it'll be a conscious choice rather than a consequence of other decisions. Many TV shows work this way. So, what about the moving point on the spectrum, the moving home base? You can enjoy a different adventure and setting for each story, but still have the continuity of non-player characters and the home base to use as an additional character. Some genres, science fiction especially, have an advantage here, in that they can more easily flex these definitions a little and do some of both, but most genres have something that can be worked to a similar purpose. A pirate ship on the high seas, an airship flying around Europe or a flying castle floating around a fantasy setting could provide a similar feel. Or you could set your campaign during a migration of people, such as used in the Banner Saga series of video games. Constantly travelling and fleeing something, but the community all comes with the party. It has all the advantages, and all the disadvantages, of both. Whichever style is chosen requires focusing on different aspects of the campaign from both the Games Master and the other players, but the aspect that changes most is character and non-player character design. Obviously, attention needs to go to the setting, and more detailed attention is required for areas that will be more visited, or where particularly important scenes are needed, but it's the treatment of characters that demands particular consideration. If a non-player character is always around, either through a static setting or travelling with the party, then you can take your time with them, slowly reveal aspects of their personalities and backstories, and foreshadow revelations. They're always accessible. If they'll only be around briefly, whether because your players are currently visiting their corner of the map, or they've come to your player's town then you need to be more economical with them. You need to plan how to illustrate who they are quickly, ideally in no more than a couple of scenes, and you can't waste their screen time. That brevity of presence, however, has its advantages. They can have far more impact over a shorter time frame, and if you do it well, they can really hit home hard. If they originate in a player character's backstory, some of the work is already done for you. If not, then you can save yourself some work by foreshadowing their arrival. Perhaps they're a celebrity in your world, so many will know of them, at least. Perhaps other non-player characters may have met them before and be able to warn the player characters of what to expect. Finally, player characters need to consider these questions as well in character creation, specifically when creating their backstory. Consider how much travelling will be involved in the campaign. There's no point in leaving a jilted lover on a different continent unless you expect to travel there. Or they'd have some reason to track your character down, 
or to visit the main area of the setting. If you're about to play in a travelogue, then you don't want anything that's going to tie you to home too much. That isn't to say that you need to create a loner with no friends who's happy to burn bridges. Sam Ganji wanted nothing more than to get back to the Shire. But you need to create a character who's prepared to travel and leave it behind. If you are creating a character for a more static setting, then you'll need to do the opposite. The character needs connections to the setting around them. They presumably work somewhere and will have friends and or family. Have they always lived in the setting? So will have childhood memories or are they recently arrived? Even if they've just arrived, why do they or will they care so much about this village that they'll stay and try to help when bad stuff happens? And it might be easier just to leave. I recently proposed a campaign to my group and one reaction was why wouldn't my character just go home? The obvious answer to me was that they should create a character that wouldn't just go home. There's no right or wrong answer to which style is better, just advantages and disadvantages to each. Travel can open up new experiences in the campaign, just as it can in real life, but people will usually care about home. Just keep in mind that the characters within a setting are truly what brings it to life and use them appropriately. Whether that's on a journey or staying in one location, it's the people that make it memorable. Review Cowboy Bebop Space Serenade Cowboy Bebop is one of those TV series which always makes it into lists of If you've never seen anime, start here. It's stylish, accessible, and genuinely action-packed. A Japanese animated series for those who aren't deeply into the subculture. Unsurprising, then, to see a board game break through using this series. In fact, two have appeared in quick succession, different in style and from different publishers. So, to be clear, I'm talking about Cowboy Bebop Space Serenade. This is a deck-building game very similar in design to the popular Legendary Encounters series, including Alien, Predator, X-Files, Buffy and Firefly versions. The crew of the Bebop compete to gain bounty points by weakening and capturing wanted criminals using violence or evidence, eventually leading to a climactic battle against the big bad named Vicious. For those who haven't played a deck builder before, every player has their own deck of cards which represent their skills – Each turn they play the cards in their hand, discard them, draw a new hand and continue until they run out of cards. At this point they shuffle their discards back into a deck and carry on. The starting deck contains very basic cards, made up of low money and weak attacks. The aim of the game is to use these basic cards to damage low-level enemies while also buying better cards. The newly purchased cards are generally added to the player's discard pile meaning that they will eventually find their way into the player's deck, gradually improving the strength of future hands. Typically, these games also feature a way of removing low-quality cards from the deck, improving the potential strength of each draw even more. Cowboy Bebop Space Serenade adds a third and fourth currency to the genre standards of money and damage, in the form of fuel and evidence. Whilst violent encounters are a cheap way to gather points, they cause deck-diluting injury cards to be added to the player's pile. Evidence, however, is more costly to gain and deploy, but generates no penalties. 
Fuel is used to drive a spatial element, not often found in deck-building games. Cowboy Bebop's fugitives appear in three locations, Earth, Ganymede and Mars. Each player must spend fuel to move their character between these locations to try to capture these fugitives. Fuel can also be spent to activate unique player powers, wonderfully themed around the characters from the series. Faye can trade fuel for spending power, Spike makes his own luck by drawing additional cards, Jet can remove injury cards, and Edward is able to generate additional evidence points. It's the location element which really differentiates Cowboy Bebop Space Serenade from many other deck-building games. Each player is competing to earn the highest bounties, so getting to each fugitive is a race. However, it is possible to use card abilities to move each other's characters, so there is a wonderfully unsporting element among the competitive crew. Also, if another character is in your location, you can use one of their abilities. Therefore, chasing the same bounty as another player makes your basic ability available to them, and vice versa. Unplayed characters also remain present in every game, so they can be used as non-player characters, providing additional powers. For me, the thing which Cowboy Bebop Space Serenade absolutely nails is the semi-cooperative nature of the design. Very few games manage to create a common goal while at the same time attempting to win individually. In this game, if the final boss baddie isn't beaten within a set number of turns, everybody loses. Fighting Vicious is a fairly stiff challenge, and once you've played Cowboy Bebop Space Serenade more than once, you'll appreciate that you need to build a strong deck specifically designed to take him on. So, despite your fierce competition with other players, you will definitely need to work together a little to make sure his defeat is possible. There's a genuine love for the source material in the design of this game, with stills from the series reproduced in high quality on the cards and boards. The game comes with five wonderfully detailed miniatures used to denote the locations of the characters. For those who prefer cardboard standees, these are also an option in the box, although the quality of the stands is very poor, so you may find yourself raiding other games for plastic bases. But generally, apart from the bases, the component quality is exceptionally high. For really hardcore deck builder fans, the card play is probably at the lighter end of the scale. You won't be creating superpowered combos as is possible in, say, Star Realms. However, Cowboy Bebop Space Serenade is solid, highly accessible, and provides a lot of scope to craft the deck the way you want it to be. The card abilities are varied and interesting, and it definitely leans towards planning to build certain kinds of synergies each game, depending on what comes out in the drawer of the card store. I taught this game to a player completely inexperienced with deck builders and found it to be an excellent entry-level design. It also has a built-in solo mode which offers a pretty stiff challenge, so there's lots of ways to enjoy it. If you love Cowboy Bebop and enjoy card games, then I'd say Space Serenade is a must-buy. It fits gameplay to the theme and tone of the series so perfectly, plays fairly quickly, under an hour for practiced players, and is a tight and satisfying competition. If you just love the series and haven't tried this style of game before, then I also recommend it. It's simple to learn and a great introduction to deck building games. Acid, Chapter 6 Hope is a port city in the Leopard Archipelago. 
Its permanent residents called it the Port City. Unlike the more modern cities, which tend towards a large central island with dozens or even hundreds of small towns and villages nearby making up the suburbs, it is a vast collection of mismatched modules strung together over generations and merged via walkways, cable cars and prayer into one large structure. It's often claimed to be the oldest working port on the planet, and there are plenty of parts of hope that certainly look like they've been floating in the Venusian acid atmosphere for centuries. Extract from A Tourist Guide to the Solar States, 2nd edition, by Zachariah Thornton. The clouds parted long enough to see a small segment of hope on approach, bulbous and spindly like some vast metallic cloud creature. Lights seemed randomly placed across the dark hull, except around the docking ports where flashing strobes guiding ships in from the storms picked out regular box patterns. Denica peered through the thick window, grime and corrosion on the outside warping and staining the view. Dozens of airships hung on the long docking gantries. More faded in and out of visibility around the vast bulk of hope through the clouds on approach or departing. Some, like Hackermeister's barge, were mid-sized cargo haulers, a common sight plying the ever-shifting lanes between the floating islands of Venusian humanity. No two were quite the same. Some were new models, still shiny and sleek. Some were older barges, patched and yellowed by the continual corrosion. Some ships were almost half as large as Hope itself. Vast planet-trotting tankers or gas haulers, the only size limit being budget and lifting capacity. The real behemoths were indistinct with distance, docked to the industrial areas of the port. A couple were so large they were anchored to mooring buoys. Most, on the docking port Denica's ship was heading for, were commercial traders. Passenger dirigibles tended to dock elsewhere on Hope, in dedicated bays more suited to the needs of people than cargo, and generally out of view of the grubbier merchant. Here, almost everything shared Venus's beige-orange colouring. The long night had started as the Hackermeister's barge chased Hope across the skies. The only illumination, aside from the occasional lighting discharges, came now from tiny human-made lamps burning defiantly in the face of this hostile planet. Denica propped herself up on the welded piping crutch that had been quietly left in her room while she slept. The gift seemed to confirm that Denica's Castillo accounts had yielded enough to turn her from cargo into a passenger, though neither Joachim or the Hackermeister had met her again. Chimps changed her dressings and brought her food such as it was. She didn't ask for an audience. Somehow, as she had recovered physically over the last few days, she began to feel worse. Her body seemed wrong, not just because of the pain, not just because her balance was different, even sitting or lying down, not just because only having one eye was somewhat disorienting. Something else, something more insidious nagged at her. She felt as though even the chimps that tended to her looked on her with pity. She hated herself, hated everything, but the rage went nowhere. It wasn't a volcanic rage that erupted into action. This rage was silent, burning her from the inside and offering nothing in return. No catharsis, no respite, just a smouldering pain and sense that it was the wick of her life that was being consumed. 
Three days ago, a chimp brought her a medical file. The serving animal left it on the battered table near her bed and made a sign that seemed to be a cross between, I'm sorry, and read this. It contained a long list of exactly what had been done to her. In addition to her leg and arm, she'd lost a chunk of her right lung and part of her small intestine. Her liver was severely scarred, her hearing was being augmented by an implanted aid, the thought of which made her feel sick, and one kidney had been removed. She was covered in smaller wounds, several bullet holes, some slashes and gashes, and her remaining leg had been broken too, requiring surgery and pinning to fix. The report suggested that her endocrine system was severely damaged, as well as numerous other side effects of the hyperadrenal compounds. Physical injuries were always a highly likely consequence of her vocation, but it was considered a worthwhile payoff. Typically, monitors either succeeded or died trying. She wasn't sure if any had ever failed and lived. She explored the idea, prodding at it like a loose tooth. She found it distasteful. She'd forced herself to watch as the chimps changed her bandages and methodically applied bootlegged, unlabeled biotics to her wounds. The skin was closed with neat stitches, no spray bandages or skin glue here. It was like falling back through time. She would be covered in scars, and not all of them physical. She'd been surprised to see her face. It was both her and not her. It had taken two days to work up the courage and two hours on the day itself to finally stamp down her fear and look in the mirror. Not only was she missing an eye, but there was also severe scarring around the socket. The missing front tooth strangely didn't look as bad as it felt. She didn't remember exactly what happened after she lunged at Castillo, but when she did manage to fall into a drug-induced sleep, she saw the distorted features of the ghoulishly grinning woman leaning towards her over and over. Not even a new eye would give her her face back now. Somehow, even ignoring the puffiness caused by her healing, she looked different. Like the experience had reshaped her. A week later, she'd tried to use the crutch and popped several stitches. The chimps had found her on the cabin floor using every swear word she knew. They'd signed at her to have patience and to call them the next time she wanted to try walking. She cursed them for the animals they were as a small group of them worked to get her back into bed. She cursed them even as they injected sedative into her IV line and left. The rage burned bright that day. It felt good. Two weeks after that, she was hobbling short distances. She was utterly disgusted at how exhausting it was to move even a single step. It took almost everything she had to hobble out of her tiny room and walk a few steps to the nearest porthole to watch Hope come into view. She stood at the porthole, sweating and in pain, feeling the thrum of the engines through the sole of her pathetically thinned shoe. A hand on her shoulder made her jump. She hadn't heard anyone coming. Of course she hadn't. Her hearing, even with the implant, would never be what it was. Probably shouldn't be out of bed yet, Joachim grumbled through his beard. Denica turned back to the grimy porthole. 
I thought you'd discharge your duty. She heard Joachim's voice shift gears. Well, if it's like that, then yes, but... She waited. Her mind ticked over possibilities. Before, she might have assumed he was about to ask her if she was available, but now... The boss isn't going to let you leave. I came to suggest you don't resist. Whoever you were isn't who you are. He sounded sad or angry. It was hard for her to tell. Thank you, she said, without turning round. After a few seconds, she heard him leave. Something about the space changed. Hope didn't seem any closer. If anything, the little lights looked smaller, fainter, further away. Hackermeister stepped in through the open door, filling the room again with her presence. Your shit wasn't worth shit, you owe me. And there's only one way to pay now. Bruno here will escort you to your new owner. And just like that, Denica was property. She didn't resist. After she got back to her cabin, she was so exhausted she'd simply slept. As she drifted off, it surprised her that she wasn't making any sort of plans. She just couldn't work up the energy to care. This was just another thing that happened. It didn't matter. Tactically, the situation was hopeless. She had nothing. No one. Mariri's little warm body wasn't there as a tangible link to who she was, what she was. Her mentor had apparently abandoned her. The monitors themselves wouldn't intercede. She was truly alone. There were only two days out, and she wasn't ready for one of them just yet. After Hackermeister's visit, a chimp arrived with a set of clothes, ragged, rough, threadbare items, and a single worn shoe on top. Though it was more rugged than the thin ship shoe she was wearing, it was still laughably inadequate. The chimp signed to her to get changed. A few minutes later, Bruno arrived. She'd only just managed to stamp on the shoe and was already sweating and chafing. He didn't wait, just gruffly told her to follow him. He watched with blank eyes as she huffed off the bed and staggered the few steps to the door. When she got close, he leaned in towards her. She felt herself cringe back, lowering her eyes. She wasn't sure why. Why wasn't she fighting? Listen, no trouble, right? You're going to a decent place, better than most, better than you get here. He seemed to feel that was enough, and she saw him move away down the corridor. She hobbled after him. Part of her mind tried to imagine ways to fight. The crutch was solid, it would make a good weapon, but she couldn't put together the idea of actually doing anything. He didn't look back, didn't consider her a threat, didn't respect her. Finally, shaking and sweating, she hobbled into the docking collar. The rims of doorways were hard to navigate. They only required a step of maybe a few centimetres, but that alone was challenging. She vividly recalled scaling the side of the Tower of Light. It was another life, another Denica. Bruno leaned on the frame of the exterior airlock door. He wore the same blank look, looking through her. He didn't try to help her as she puffed and huffed over to him. Go through, was all he said, with a tilt of his chin. And just like that, Denica's stay on the Hackermeister's ship was done. 
She'd half expected Joaquin to be there, if only to see how his patient was doing, but other than Bruno, there had been no one in sight the whole way. Only a couple of chimps that scurried around on errands and two or three rodents scuttling round on maintenance chores. Through the airlock was a short corridor and a sealed door at the other side. She felt herself shrink at the distance. It wasn't more than a few metres, but it felt like crossing miles of crushing Venusian surface. The airlock on the other side looked different to the worn, much-painted corridors of Hackermeister's ship, but offered no reprieve. The plastic coating on everything in the room was fairly new, and the deep cross-hatching texture moulded into the floor wasn't filled with the grime of decades. This part of Hope must have been newly refurbished. Denica felt something flutter in her stomach as the indicators on the door before her switched from red to green. The hatch popped and sighed open on well-maintained hinges. A small woman stood in the opening. 1731990, she read off the clipboard. Denica didn't entirely know what to say, so she stayed silent, eye cast down, examining the floor. The woman paused and looked up for the first time. You, you're 1731990. It wasn't a question. The woman looked down and made a mark on the clipboard. You will respond when asked a question, Denica nodded and said. Yes. The last flutter of hope died. The woman grunted and walked off at a brisk pace down the brightly lit passageway behind the airlock. She was small, wearing a well-fitting suit that was cut in a spacer style, though it lacked any real fittings for a spacesuit and was purely a fashion item. Compared to the ragtag look of Hackermeister's crew, it felt somehow like Denica was stepping forward in time to her own century once more. Come on! The woman called over her shoulder. Honestly, you people are getting more and more stupid. Denica realised she was being addressed. The woman had stopped at the next door and was impatiently tapping her foot, hand on the door controls. She struggled over the airlock rim and hobbled forwards as fast as she could manage, irrationally feeling anxious to make a good impression. She had no real idea why it seemed important to impress, but some part of her urged her onwards. There was no time to look back. She heard the airlock slam behind her. She was led down what felt like miles of corridors which were almost all the same. Only the door markings she occasionally glanced at let her know they were definitely not just walking around in circles. Later, much later, they arrived at some sort of intersection. Are you trying to make me late? The woman exclaimed. Denica could barely breathe at this point. The unnatural gait of walking with only one leg and a crutch jammed under her missing arm was proving harder than she'd ever imagined. The woman looked Denica up and down, an expression of distaste passing across her face as her eye lingered on the bandages. I assume you're discounted? I don't know, you should count yourself lucky that anyone bought you. The final door opened out onto a wide, high-roofed area which was thronged with pedestrians. Piles of luggage marked loading areas and people of all colours and sizes milled around or stood staring at the flashing arrivals and departures board. The whole area smelled of a thousand travellers and destinations. 
The air swirled with the currents of freedom, leaving on a hundred different ships. Denica read the names off departure boards as the woman harried her around the concourse. She itched to simply head towards one of the other gates, just walk away to a new life, but she felt naked and vulnerable in a way her mind couldn't entirely encompass. Even Mawiri would have been able to kill this arrogant bureaucrat with a single bite, but she was gone, and that Denica was gone too. This Denica bowed her head and did her best to hobble Buster. The majority of boards listed flights to assorted ports all over Venus. Denica recognised at least three quarters of them immediately. Thebes, Chelsis, Licht, Bernsdorf, The Ranch, Kroplin, Engels, Carabonovo, High Spania, Mozul Pavlarad, Abydos, Montesilvano, Scafati. The list went on and on. She picked out other ports here and there at the centre of the biggest clusters of people and luggage. They walked past a section of terminals filtering traffic to and from the shuttle ports. The passengers here were largely business people or tourists from off-world. The tourists arriving wore exotic clothes and almost all of them looked around with wide-eyed expressions of delight and surprise. Seneca's urge for freedom was tempered by disgust as she started to see not only service animals being treated like humans, a family of canine-like animals pushing luggage, some breed of large chimp wearing clothes that weren't emblazoned with corporate colours, but also a few deviant human forms amongst the crowd. People who belonged to societies where it was not only tolerated but even encouraged to veer away from standard human norms. One of the last things she saw was a small group of extremely tall, skinny tourists emerging from the tunnel, their porcelain skin and bald heads sticking up above the crowd as they rode in robotic armatures. Low-gravity welders, not even strong enough to stand on a proper planet. She felt vaguely sickened and disturbed. There's something wholly alien about nonconformists. It was bad enough that other states granted human rights to service animals, but to corrupt the human shape was as abhorrent as relying on technology to live. Denica hobbled a little faster after the woman. However much she hated her new position, at least she was amongst real people. She couldn't maintain the pace. She was slowing. Her escort was getting increasingly annoyed. At one point, the small woman even dropped back and tried prodding Denica along physically, but that uh, simply caused Denica to stumble and slow further. So, eventually, the little woman relented and simply walked one pace behind, making sighing noises. <sighs> Denica was too exhausted to do anything but stumble onwards. The bustle of the terminal had buoyed her for a time, she got lost in the idea of slipping away and hopping onto one of the transports to somewhere different. She'd entertained the idea right up to the point where they walked past a gate that had almost finished boarding. The last few passengers were passing the security gate and being scanned. Then reality hit home. Even if she'd managed to slip away somehow, she, she'd never make it past the gate with no valid ID. And even if she somehow managed to con her way past the gate itself, she had no money, no boarding pass, and no way to pay to get anywhere. Her emotions had 
collapsed inwards, reducing the whole world to little more than the next hop step. Her armpit was on fire from the chafing caused by the terrible clothing and inadequately padded crutch. Every muscle in her body, including nose and her missing leg, was on fire. Her various barely healed wounds felt like they were ripping open again and she was continually dizzy from the disorienting effect of only being able to see from one eye and the fact that, for some reason, her hearing didn't seem to work in stereo anymore. When they were finally stopped, Delica was surprised to realise that her surroundings were different. She was standing outside a door along a corridor of exposed pipes and bare metal, painted with a ubiquitous light grey. The floor was a bubble metal grating that revealed parallel lines of cabling and pipework under the decking. The door was a dull red, chipped and scratched around the hinges and latch. A palm scanner on the frame was clearly a later addition. It accepted her escort's hand, and the red door made a whirring mechanical noise as the locking mechanism retracted. The room beyond was small, barely larger than the bunk it contained. Above the bunk was a storage unit. The room was the exact length of the bunk and the width of the door. Opposite the bunk was a large screen displaying a rotating logo of a company Denica didn't recognise. This is your room. It must be immaculate at all times. Please access the screen for a full list of regulations. The woman recited the words as though reading from a script. Clearly something she'd learned a long time ago. You're expected to comply. Non-compliance results in punishment. She simply walked away without looking at Denica. The corridor was narrow but long. Coloured doors lined each side and Denica suspected that each contained a room identical to her own. At least it was clean. She hobbled in and fell onto the bunk, falling asleep. Almost instantly. Thank you for listening to Parallel Worlds Issue 14. If you'd like to read these articles and more, why not consider becoming a patron? There's a link on our website, www.parallelworlds.uk. This issue featured articles written by Angus McNichol, Chris Cunliffe, Christopher Jarvis, Lewis Calvert and Sam Long. It was edited by Tom Grundy. This audio edition features the voices of Christopher Jarvis, Jamie Sugar, Kai Zen, Kareem Cronfley, Peter Wotherspoon and Sarah Golding and was edited by Peter Wotherspoon. Music was composed and performed by Dustin Midnight Driscoll. We'd like to thank our patrons for their support. For copies of back issues of our magazine and podcasts, visit our website at www.parallelworlds.uk. Thank you.